Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. If we were to locate the center of Paul's gospel, the book of Ephesians, and in fact the sentence that we're about to read running from verse 3 to 14, I think this sentence is a good start. Bible scholars, others would argue that the center is not even found in Ephesians but is best summed up in Paul's depiction of faith against works or law over and against grace. And if that's true, in other words, if that is the center of the gospel, then these themes are best summed up in books like Romans or Galatians. And Ephesians is not even in the running. And the difference this makes, this may sound like, oh, an academic question, but actually it's a very important question because the difference is in how we read the Bible, how we understand Paul, and really how we understand the gospel. Quite simply, is the gospel primarily a contract or is it primarily about a covenant? And I'll explain this difference. Is Christianity mainly about a broken legal contract in which payment is demanded and you know Jesus made the payment? Or is Christianity about entering into a covenant of love on the order of marriage is the way Paul will describe it in Ephesians. A covenant initiated by God, the creator of the universe. So that's the question. And I think this divides Christianity today. Is Christianity about a contract or a covenant? And one of the things that should be noted in Ephesians, many of the letters in the New Testament, we know exactly why they were written. You know, the Corinthian church, they're having problems. They got immorality and Paul writes to, to handle that. Galatians, they've got a problem with false teachers that even Colossians there seems to be a specific false teaching Romans question of Jews and Gentiles in the city of Rome but in Ephesians it seems to be not occasioned by any particular false teaching and this then is the circumstance in these other books where Paul talks about law versus grace or faith and justification the writing of Ephesians may precede these other letters. It may precede these events. And what we have in Ephesians then is a summation of Paul's gospel. He's he's not necessarily meant these people. It may in fact be the Laodiceans mentioned in Colossians. And Paul is just saying, okay, here's my gospel. Here's the center of the teaching that I have. So I'm going to read this one sentence and suggest this does indeed sum up Paul's gospel. And of course, as I said, for many this will be seen as irrelevant, not even touching upon what Christianity is about, you know, the main thing. So I'm going to try to explain how this recentering may entail, in fact, a complete change 
in our understanding of what is the key part of the gospel. So let's read Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Quite a mouthful. So let's break it down. And clearly Paul, he begins this in the form of a blessing. And it is a blessing, what he's describing, our blessed life that we have in Christ. And he's using this to convey the insight that fellowship with God. And when he mentions God throughout this, he's interwoven the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the triune God who lies at the center of the world, the cosmos. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and their work with the world is summed up then in this one sentence. The purpose of God worked out in Christ, he says, existed before the foundation of the world. God knew what he was doing in Christ, and this was always what he was doing. That we should be holy and blameless before him, having been chosen in love. And of course, love is thematic here. And maybe that's the key difference between contract and covenant that it is a covenant of love and not a contract of law. At the heart of the cosmos, its inception, its existence, and its future lies God's plan to create us. He creates us for fellowship. He creates us to be friends of God. I talked about this last week. This is the wisdom which discloses God's plan for the universe. And this is his predestined plan. You know, we've got a lot of talk about 
predestination. And unfortunately, I think it's mainly negative. You know, if you go to the Calvinist church, they'd say, well, you know, some people are predestined for heaven, some people predestined for hell. Sorry, you hell folks, that's just the way it is. That has nothing to do with biblical predestination, which is spelled out here. That is the predestined plan. It's not that he chose some and rejected others, but the plan included the purpose for the creation of the cosmos. God has predestined this. He's taking the world someplace in Christ. And the plan entailed primarily initiation of a relationship by creating us and then calling us and drawing us into communion in the loving movement called election. And the Greek literally meaning calling out, hence summoning us. We have been summoned into a relationship. And this relationship is sealed or completed by the Holy Spirit. I think we could sum up the whole gospel in this way. This is Douglas Campbell, a scholar of uh, the New Testament. He says, the secret of the universe and the point of the great narrative that encompasses us all is God's plan to draw us into a community imaged and formed by his resurrected son. So the risen Jesus will have primacy, but also a rather extraordinary equality with those who surround him and look like him. Everyone in this community will be a brother. And he pauses here and says, we, you know, the male language should be inclusive. Of course, this is all people, male and female. Bearing the image of the resurrected one. Our destiny then is to be a band of brothers, a band of siblings, which is to say, this is God's great plan that lies at the heart of the cosmos. This is what God is doing. Its fulfillment is the story that enfolds us all. And it's the only story that really matters. Now Campbell is just saying this about the gospel. But then he notices, oh, what I just said about the whole gospel, and throughout this I didn't give you the scripture references. What he notices, oh, and by the way, this is all summed up in one sentence by Paul at the beginning of Ephesians. And so what may be remarkable in this summing up of the gospel, first of all, I think it's simplicity. And also then what we didn't talk about, what's missing. You know, Paul notes the redemption from sin, through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins. But this is not seen as a part of a two-step process. You know, in this understanding, God created the world, and then God's plans were ruined by Adam and Eve. They fell, and then God had to redraw his plans, and God decided to send Jesus. As if God didn't predetermine, didn't understand his purposes. This says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption. That is, the main part of this story is not the fall and sin. The main part of this story is God's love and our adoption. God's love and will, they are the determining factor in the creation of the world. And if this is the center, if I've just said the center of the gospel, 
This means the center does not really pertain to law. Notice I never use the word law. And certainly there is grace in this picture. But it's not grace over and against works. Or it's not faith over and against works. And I'm not saying we simply ignore these subjects. But it is to suggest these aren't front and center of Paul's description of the gospel. If this is the gospel, what about all that other stuff? I think the big thing between the choice between covenant or contract is really what our atonement theory is. That is, our atonement theory, our understanding of why Jesus died, either it's based on contract or it's based on covenant. By basing it on contract, we're going to read the New Testament very differently. And so the way that we often tell the, the story of the gospel is along a kind of Lutheran sort of understanding. In fact, we kind of think of Paul as the first Luther in his conversion on the road to Damascus. And so in this understanding, what was Paul's main problem? Well, Paul suffered from a guilty conscience, didn't he? Arising from his inability to keep the law, just like Luther. You know, Luther kind of tortured himself because he couldn't keep the law. And Paul's struggle is often seen in this light of a kind of introspective consciousness. And really what we're doing, we're reading the story of Augustine and Luther into the story of Paul, in which salvation is seen primarily in terms of guilt and relief. And so Christopher Stendhal says that in the history of Western Christianity, and hence to a larger extent in the history of Western culture, the Apostle Paul has been hailed as a hero of the introspective conscience. He was the man who grappled with the problem, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I do. And so the background of this gives rise to the notion of justification by faith. What's our problem? We broke the law. What's the problem? We have a guilty conscience. What's the answer? Well, we have justification through faith. And this is hailed as the answer to the problem that faces the kind of introspective conscience. But this doesn't line up with Paul at all. If you think about it a minute, look at Philippians chapter 3. Paul speaks most fully there about his life before he was a Christian. And there's no indication that he had any difficulty in fulfilling the law. In fact, he says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I fulfilled the law flawlessly, perfectly. And then he has an encounter with Christ, you know, in Acts 9, 1 to 9. I don't think that changed the fact. It was not to him a restoration of a plagued conscience. He didn't have a troubled conscience. And that's what he's describing in Philippians 3.13. He does not think about the shortcomings of his obedience to the law, but in fact he's bragging. He's talking about his great achievements as a Jew. And achievements then which he says are as so much refuge in light of his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. So justification by faith is going to mean something very different if the notion of guilt and relief from guilt is not the primary lens for reading and understanding Paul or even understanding Judaism. And see, part of this, I think we have a misunderstanding through Lutheranism, through Calvinism, 
about what Judaism is. For the Jew, the law did not require a kind of perfectionism, but it was about a covenant relationship in which there was room for forgiveness. In other words, Paul wasn't saying he was without sin. That's not what that means. The law made provision for failure to keep it. Judaism, as it's often characterized, is almost anti-Semitic in the typical Protestant notion of a kind of works righteousness religion. A religion that gives a, a legalistic account of justification by works. And many Jews say this is unrecognizable to us. We don't, we don't know what you're talking about. Jewish scholars say, well, this, this isn't rabbinic Judaism. Solomon Schechter, a Jewish scholar, says, either the theology of the rabbis must be wrong, its conception of God debasing, its leading motives materialistic and coarse, and its teachers lacking in enthusiasm and spirituality, or the apostle to the Gentiles is quite unintelligible. He's saying the way that you're telling me Paul reads Judaism isn't a Judaism that I know about. Judaism is not based on this kind of contractual relationship of law keeping. It's based on a covenantal relationship. Think back to the story of Abraham. This is the founding moment in Judaism. You know, this is Paul's argument throughout Romans and in Galatians. That Israel's covenant relationship with God was basic to the Jews' sense of national identity. Who are we? Well, it's like in this verse we just read. We're the people God has called. We're the people that God has chosen. But of course, Paul has expanded this as a universal call. And so far as we can tell, no first century Judaism had something like the, the idea of this law keeping. That God has chosen Israel, rather, to be his peculiar people in this covenant relationship. And the law was given as an expression of this covenant to regulate and maintain the relationship. That's what Paul says. You know, the covenant with Abraham came prior to the law. And the law is simply a tutor, a guide. And so the relationship of the covenant was primary. And so too righteousness must be seen in terms of this relationship. You know, the word righteousness, that's what bothered Luther so much. He said the word just kind of made me sick because God's righteousness, you know, I could never achieve that. But I think we've misunderstood it. God's righteousness isn't bad news, it's good news. God is making things right just as he is right. And he's bringing us into a relationship to make things right. And so obedience to the law, even in Judaism, was never the means of this making right. It was the covenant with God. E.P. Sanders calls this then, if we had to describe Judaism, it's a kind of covenantal gnomism. That is, that it's a covenant and the law comes upon that. Covenantal gnomism is the view that one's place in God's plan is established on the basis of the covenant, God's call to us. And that the covenant requires, as the proper response of man, his obedience, while providing means of atonement for transgression. Obedience maintains one's position in the covenant, but it does not earn God's grace as such. That is, 
We don't make the covenant, God does. Righteousness in Judaism is a term which implies the maintenance of status of the group of the elect. How are you a part of the elect? You're part of the, the called out people. And so this means that focusing on law keeping and grace misses Paul's notion of the gospel. Now what's the alternative? And this is, I, I don't know if you've heard of Albert Schweitzer, the famous medical missionary to Africa. He claims the doctrine of righteousness by faith is therefore a subsidiary crater which has formed within the rim of the main crater the mystical doctrine of redemption through being in Christ. And that's the main thing I want to focus on. That is thematic in the New Testament, is being in Christ. Rather than reading justification by faith as the main topic, and I'm not endorsing Albert Schweitzer, I'm just saying he notices this about the New Testament. He argues that this is the focus, this union with Christ, being in Christ is the focus. And this means it is our relationship that saves, our relationship of being in Christ. And even here, I think we get the wrong idea about faith. You know, what's the nature of faith? Well, it's also participation in Him. Uh, in Him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, this is Paul, the gospel of your salvation, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. What faith saves us? It's not our faith so much, but it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that saves us. I'm describing a series of revolutions in theological understanding. And this is one of those that there is the recognition, oh, we've misunderstood faith. We often picture faith as faith in Christ, that it's faith as Christ as a kind of object. But actually many references are really not about the faith that we have, but it's the faithfulness of Christ. And our faith, you know, being in Jesus, means it's our participation in his faithfulness. Think in terms of the covenant. Who has kept the covenant? Oh, Christ. And what happens when we're in Christ? We enter into that covenantal relationship. And so there's a participatory notion of faith that I think we often miss. Oh, we're emulating Jesus in our faith. Even in our faith, it's not simply that he's an object for our faith. That may be true, but he's the subject, that he's there with us in that faith. And so it's not so much about a contractual obligation but it's keeping this relationship. And it's not what we do or what we've done, but it's what God is doing, his predetermined plan. And so because the basis for the, this relationship is precisely love, not law, God, who is the actor in the covenant, he reaches out to us, and that's what Paul is describing. It's independent of anything that we do, he does it. And it's unconditional love. It's the love of a parent for a child. It's an unconditional and gracious act. And the relationship, he's the one who's taken the initiative. God in Christ is on a mission. And he meets us where we are. 
and once established this relationship, it's irrevocable. It lasts forever. That is this covenantal relationship. And so let me sum up. I think we can highlight Paul's gospel as Paul does here in Ephesians with four points. One way of describing this, you know, he describes that we are seated with Christ at the right hand of God, present tense. What we might call a realized eschatology. Eschatology is, you know, the end times. Well, what Paul is describing is the end times have begun now in Christ. Resurrection, ascension, rule, life, all come together in this predestined plan of God. And this rule is not simply to a future eschatological fulfillment. Certainly it is that, but it is unfolding now. And so this is the distinctive emphasis of Ephesians. It's a present tense realized or being realized eschatology. We are now seated with him at the right hand of God. You know, actually you could just go through the, the one sentence I read. Present tense, we have redemption. We have obtained an inheritance. We are sealed with him. There is a present tense aspect that certainly is unfolding, but it's now, it's realized. So that's point one. Second, this new understanding is not about a, you know, in Lutheranism, he comes up with the phrase imputed righteousness. And what that means is the main thing that has happened now Christ's righteousness on the law books, now that's imputed to you. And it's a kind of legalistic fiction. But what Paul is describing in this passage and throughout Ephesians is a real world defeat of sin and evil. That is that sin's root is cut in Christ. That the sinful being of humanity, the sin problem of the cosmic order, you know, it's full of oppressive powers of sin and death. We learn about this, that there's the defeat of the powers, the prince of the power of the air. It tells us that the power of sin and evil, the, sin, the, the problem of death that is wielded by these principalities and powers is being defeated. And for Paul, this is the mystery revealed. You know, he, he talks thematically here about the mystery in 3, 9 to 10, then, he describes that we now reign over these powers. We're not simply subject to these powers. We can challenge the powers. Satan's power over the nations is ended. Every Christian can participate. This is chapter 6, 10 to 20, you know, that famous section where Paul talks about putting on the full armor of God. Well, of course, you do that to defeat the evil in the world. And so we can really become holy. We can really become blameless. And it's not simply an imputed righteousness. No, things are really being made right. And we're participating in that. And the third thing is what I mentioned at the beginning, that all of this is Trinitarian. And what, what that means for us is it's participation in who God is as Trinity. And Paul uses even, it's a sexual metaphor that he actually gets from Genesis, and we find it several places in the New Testament, that he understands sexual union as a unification on the same order or illustrative of the union between human beings and God. 
And so there's a close relational intimacy without any erasure of differentiation in Christ. Let me just go through a few of these. In you know, humankind, he says in 532, is created for this mystery. He's talking about marriage, but he says, oh, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Christ's salvation, the mystery revealed to all the saints, he says, brings about a unity of all things. 110. Things in heaven and things in earth. It's inclusive of the unity between Jews and Gentiles. This is chapter 3. The saving union with God, it, is, it marks the Christian life. In 4.3 he talks about keep the unity of the spirit through the oneness of the body. There's one body and one spirit, one hope, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Chapter 4, 4-6. Four and then he describes the point of the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, is to maintain the unity of the faith until all of us attain unity with the whole body 416 being joined together and united together we're being united together with God with one another in Christ and so the gospel this gospel unity is the resolution to the problem of alienation 418 Christians are members he says of one another so we have this participatory or participation in the life of God in one another. And then the fourth thing is this is unconditional. No human act can initiate or affect this eschatological eruption of God. The sending of the Son. People are caught up in this. They're called to the irresistible purposes of God. This is what Paul describes outside of Damascus. You know, Paul himself, he's called by Christ. And Paul opens Ephesians with this understanding. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And so Paul tells us this was in accordance with his eternal purposes, which he carried out in Jesus Christ, all because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. A new person, a new humanity has been made. The first creation is not the primary one. The idea is, no, this second creation subordinates the first creation. That is, this is what creation was always about. So, with the recentering of Paul's gospel, we recognize Christianity is not about a contract. It's about a covenant. A covenant of love in which we enter into relationship with God. The love of God, not the law of God, is the basis on which we have a relationship with God, with the world, with other people, and I think even with ourselves. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. 
If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.